Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Uh, this is our final keynote presentation. Um, everyone should know we are recording this session, uh, but the only people who will appear on camera are the speakers at this time, which will be me and our keynote speaker, Krish Nendure. Uh, Krish is a sociologist by training and the chair of the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at New York University. He has very modestly asked me not to bore you by listing his many scholarly papers, and I will honor that, but his extensive work on diaspora cooking is groundbreaking. First in the Migrants Table, Meals and Memories of in Bengali American Households, and most recently, the Ethnic Restaurateur, highly, highly recommended, these works both touch on many of the themes explored in some of our papers and chats, uh, but from a New York perspective, so they are highly recommended. On a more personal note, I had the joy a few years back of being a student in Krish's graduate theory seminar. Articulate teachers speak in complete sentences, eloquent ones in paragraphs, but the brilliant ones discourse in full chapters which is what my class encountered every Monday afternoon. I'm now turning you over to Krish for some of his brilliant summation thoughts on the VSIM and the human experience with herbs and spices. He claims to be delivering them as an outsider to the symposium, the quote, familiar stranger. But after we hear him, I'm surely, sure you will agree that he is our new friend. Krish Nindu. Thank you, Kathy. <clears throat> Welcome everyone, um, and uh, I'm going to talk a little about, uh, my, my talk is titled, uh, A Narrowing of Good Taste in the Modern World, Reflections on New Materialism, Epistems, and Mediums. So uh, I'll talk for about a uh, uh, little under 40 minutes. I have about 16 slides uh, to share. Uh, and uh, so, in fact, I will start by sharing my slide and I will be talking um, on the side. You will see me. <clears throat> okay, here we go. So first, thanks to the board for taking the challenges, in fact, of COVID-19 and turning them into something more productive uh, than we could have imagined. <clears throat> Especially to Elizabeth, uh, Ursula uh, and Kathy. And Kathy and Ken, in fact, uh, were responsible for enticing me uh, to take uh, on this task on commenting on everything that has happened here. And foolishly, I accepted that challenge. So I must just uh, apologize uh, that I have been able to read almost all the papers uh, and uh, listen to almost all the panels. Uh, so what I say today is based uh, on that sample. And as Kathy said, she was nominally my student, uh, but she has in fact taught, taught me much and continues uh, to do so. Uh, so Kathy, uh, thank you for this opportunity. So I take my charge today as an invitation to a discussion. Uh, the title of my talk, as I said before, ends with a question mark uh, because it's a very uh, preliminary hypothesis. Uh, and uh, as a way to invite discussion rather than uh, in, in a sense of closing uh, comments. So this is my first time surprisingly in the symposium. Uh, so I'm engaging with your material as a sort of an outsider uh, and uh, my comments will position me, I think on the margins, perhaps a bit of a familiar stranger rather than an insider. First, a quick note on um, the uh, structure and style of the V Symposium. I've been, I've been listening to people comment on it. Uh, a number of you have said how it has widened the reach uh, across uh, the uh, continents. Uh, this format has also surprisingly deepened the conversations in the discussions and breakout rooms. And uh, some of you said has allowed the shy, the introverted ones to pull themselves into the discussion more than we would have seen in real life. So sometimes virtual is better. 
as Elizabeth said, I think put it in her opening comments, uh, it has allowed a sense of informality within the formal structure, which has been productive. And Doug uh, said it, it shows a bit more of the home in the world. And you can see that behind me, my bookshelf, and I'm sitting at my, uh, in my living room on my dining table, which has now become my work table, my classroom, and my dining table. <clears throat> so let me now move to the substance uh, and I'll limit myself uh, to about 10 points. I'll also set an alarm for me to stop myself from going off uh, too long. <clears throat> so first is my epistemological uh, insight that I gathered from all of your work persistent in the symposium. So what do I mean by that is this, the relationship between various forms of knowing and acting in the world, such as cooking, medicine, and magic, that have been severed in some ways by modernity. I saw some valiant attempts here to reverse the march of some people have called epistemicide. I come from the academy and um, Disciplines dominate in the academy and disciplines get committed to method often prior to the problem or the question. Anthropology to ethnography, history with its periodization and commitment to written archives, sociologists to comparative generalizations that can often be overreaching. That is a bit like grabbing a hammer even before you know that you have to pry open something. It can be done um, but clumsily. Um, so in contrast, I in fact appreciate your agnosticism towards methodological commitments prior to framing the problem. Sometimes it is worth feeling the weight of a hammer or a wrench or a can opener in your hand before you decide which one to use. Sometimes, of course, the burden of that is you can wander with a bevy of tools without settling on one. Let me get a little more specific. Uh, recall the opening comments uh, by Harold McGee and his life's work uh, are in fact a tribute to genre bending between the science of substance and the art of writing. A gardener, a cook, a scientist, a writer of science, uh, from him, I have learned again about the science of writing and the writing of science. His work is symptomatic of complex and slow transitions between genres of knowledge, between doing and thinking and writing. And we have had a number of lovely examples of that uh, transition, a sort of um, archaeology of knowledge uh, at the V Symposium that I'll expand on below. Uh, Volker Bach's uh, uh, paper, Season to Measure, shows how most European culinary recipes continue to look like until the Renaissance, when quantities begin to appear more frequently in written sources. He marks this transition from orality to textuality, from practice to discourse, along with medicine and measurement. Scott Barton uh, links grains of paradise to magic. It is about West African culinary cultural epistemologies, underscoring the value of their knowledge systems in relationship to European epistems, pointing to, I think, the potential end of what some have called the cognitive empire with burgeoning epistemologies from the South, as I will reference even more specifically below. Speaking from the margins, uh, you must have read uh, Rabia Egbaria's discourse on Zatar in Palestine and Binti Gurung's foraged stinging nettle of Nepal, both under the shadow of more dominant nation states and their culturally assertive diasporas. Egbaria writes beautifully, I quote, this is a story as green as Zatar, as thorny as Akub two popular herbs in Palestinian culture and cuisine that unexpectedly became markers of struggle. Zatar and Akub are popular herbs 
1977, za'atar was declared a protected plant, rendering its foraging, possession, or trade a criminal offense. Akub suffered a similar fate in 2005. So those who pick za'atar and Akub subsequently became lawbreakers, and in many uh, cases were indicted and convicted. So the picking of za'atar and Akub nonetheless continues while many regard it as an act of resistance. Similarly, re recall Binti Gurung's piece on foraging stinging nettle of Nepal, which highlights a different kind of superfood, a cultural assertion of nomadic autonomy against the unbearable weight of sedentary states that like to fix people in places because they're easy to count, tax, recruit into militaries, extract, place, and punish. That is the point of oppression of mobile people and their food gathering ways, which is why there has been so many attempts uh, to bound and contain them in so many places. If you take South Asia in Binti Gurung's case, China, uh, Middle East, Europe, and of course, North America. You name it, and we have tried to destroy foraging landscapes and lifestyles. On top of that, various forms of nationalisms, I think, are narrowing our thinking and our choice about what is good to eat. Equally importantly, consolidation and scaling up of supply chains uh, that you saw, and I will talk a bit about, Amy Trubeck referenced it in Madagascar, are reducing varieties of minor crops, vegetables, especially, in fact, herbs and spices, which is your theme this year. The, the analogy here is uh, with language. So languages we know are dying, while the Anglosphere is devouring others and expanding, drawing in loan words, concept, and vocabularies from other vernacular languages. So in a sense, analogically, we are pulling in ingredients while killing cuisines with homogenization and consolidation of scale and profit. So it both is action at the level of the consumer, action at the level of the state, action at the level of the market. So that is one way to understand, I think, Doug uh, Duda's uh, uh, paper, which is he classifies as the, uh, the era of hyperspice, where, for instance, and in a number of places in the world, you would see that in the US, he references per capita consumption of spices went up from 1.2 pounds to uh, almost four pounds in 2016. So, but I think that is because uh, we are in a situation where we have more spices for us, less local spices and herbs for others. So here is a global flow from high spice areas to low spice areas with demographic change driven by race, ethnicity, and age. That is also where you will find Paul Friedman's uh, paper where he talks about the internationalization of British taste. And that is what we might find if we study, of course, one nation state at a time. Some parts of the world are getting spicier. Other parts are getting less so, especially in terms of local herbs and spices with greater dependence on markets and the profit motive compared especially to foraging. And in my own case, I can see we get a lot less, I know a lot less than uh, uh, my two grandmothers in terms of local herbs uh, and foraging, in fact, skills of foraging. It is good to remind ourselves at this point also of the reverse flow of things like asafoetida from the Mediterranean to India in Sharmila Vaidyanathan's beautiful work where it comes to replace uh, silphium which is used in South Asia to replace onion and garlic among Brahminic cuisines of Kashmir, Tamil Nadu, and Bengal. So uh, my larger point here is there are sometimes good reasons to flout methodological nationalism. The picture looks different if you do not look at one nation at a time. So there's another kind of narrowing as we find in um, Gerald Jean Smith's work where chili is reduced to heat and not flavor. He writes, it quickly superseded black pepper in everyday culinary importance around the world, but it did so as the spice of the poor and especially of the non-European ethnic other. 
it is in fact such a screaming hot spice to the uninitiated, and he argues that leads to this simplification. The simple-minded pursuit of heat and the fascination of men, especially young white men of the Anglosphere uh, with the Scoville score of exotic school cuisines. I think this is partly linked to the question of medium of communication too, about excitement and sharing and oversharing about heat uh, on social media uh, as a clickbait. Uh, but on that note itself, uh, as I was preparing uh, these comments, I read uh, Kelly Keen Sharp's piece, which uh, uh, titled, I got hot sauce in my bag swag, which corrected in fact my presumption by pointing to a black Atlantic connection to hot sauce. Two additional aspects of the epistemic insight is illuminated in Michael Crondell's paper, a uh, very beautiful paper on 16th century botanicals. Excuse me, Krish? Yeah. Should we be advancing slides? Uh, yes, of course. That's a brilliant insight. Let's see. <laughs> Okay, move the slide, let's see. Oops. Sorry for that, folks. Okay, how have I forgotten to do this now? Usually, let me reshare it, hold on, because it's not moving my slide. Sorry for that. Don't worry, Krish, because um, it's so reassuring that it's happening to you because it's happening to all of us. It's one Yeah, um, let's see, what am I not doing correctly here? You need your uh, right cursor. <laughs> yes. So uh, you said right click should do it. Uh, hmm. What did that? Okay. Yes. So these are the references. Uh, good. Yes. <clears throat> that uh, uh, I was talking about. Um, sorry for that. Um, let me kind of uh, go back to where I was, and then this is the second uh, uh, larger point. So the two, uh, <clears throat> so Michael Crondell's paper, if you recall, is about botany and pharmacy, uh, where often nebulous the distinction in the age uh, of, uh, that was trying to make sense in the world. Virtually every author of the botanicals was a physician and had studied medicine. So universities at Pisa, Bologna, Leipzig, Leiden, all established botanical gardens in the 16th century, uh, supposedly uh, to further their curative uh, uh, curriculum. Uh, second, he uh, destabilizes the authority of primary sources. If you recall, he says it can be difficult to disentangle eyewitness accounts from hearsay. Uh, and he builds a footbridge between history and hearsay, and he shows how that line can be productively interrogated. So to recuperate, my larger point uh, is, is that there has been a rich epistemic efflorescence and the bridges you have built between them at your meeting, uh, bridges between epistem also and technique and practice skill that the Greek called metis. You see it clearly in Priya Mani's uh, wrestling down the taste and aroma of stone flower, uh, a lichenized uh, fungus. And analogous uh, to Ken Albala uh, was trying to do in his presentation, as I will talk about in a bit. So my second, so that was my kind of big larger uh, point. My second point, which is a lot uh, shorter, uh, is, uh, and which is this one, is this kind of medium and message. 
we have a range of work on, in fact, at this symposium on the print revolution, on urbanism and free trade in books. Uh, in Volkerbach's paper, you see the text was becoming cheaper uh, to print, uh, hence a lot more written medical advice was available, which poses the interesting question about the relationship between substance and form and representation, especially in print or in social uh, media. I wish there was a bit more um, on uh, social media here. Uh, I think we need a little more attention to other mediums as you have done uh, with the printing uh, revolution. Third, let's see if this works. Perfect. Sorry, sorry folks for this uh, uh, PowerPoint. Um, so you have added extraordinary uh, uh, warmth, I think, uh, and savor to uh, reason, sensorially and visually rich and evocative presentations from vanilla uh, 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 to anato. And in fact, I have never learned as much about anato as uh, this time. The aromas, the color, the texture, and the affect of substance on sensibilities, uh, which is in some ways one can look at it as revitalizing matter, uh, recovering emotion with reason. Uh, what Kathy Kaufman, I think, characterized in her opening comment as the relationship between the physical, the mental, and the sensual. My next point is both substantive and methodological is an exposure to varying historical depth, I find is very productive at the uh, Oxford Symposium. You have exhibited that uh, repeatedly, where standard periodizations are in fact heuristic tools that need to be violated sometimes to test their unstated presumptions. What may not be visible at a standard focus can come uh, into view if we can get closer to it or sometimes further from it while spatially, in fact, also transforming uh, the boundaries. So uh, most dramatically, you saw that in Ken Albala's work, where his framing was almost of over a millennium. And in contrast, you also saw Paul Friedman's work, where you find the elegance of the standard Atlantic academic historian's periodization, 1870 to 1939, if you recall, in his pursuit of a savory, uh, a small piquant dish coming after the sweet and um, but before the dessert. So my next, so one is, this is about uh, uh, time. And <clears throat> this uh, next one is a bit about uh, space location. Uh, this is the transition from medieval to early modern that appears to be very productive temporal divide in, text, in taste and textuality. Transitions, in fact, reveal more than structures, more about structures, uh, not only temporal transitions, but in this case, also spatial transitions. Recall uh, William, uh, William Wise Weaver's uh, uh, work on medieval Cyprus, uh, which is about from the 12th century uh, to the 15th century, uh, uh, a text that is written in Scipio Gaelic prior to 1300, and then translated imperfectly into Latin in the 14th century. Uh, what is, for me, was very interesting about this paper was its capacity to draw from what is understood as far-flung traditions of academic Orientalism uh, that split the East from the West catastrophically. And he, I quote him, aside from uh, uh, Chinese silks as wall hangings and table coverings, food was often brought to the table in porcelains from the Yuan and early Ming dynasty. There is then also use of spices such as bark sa saffron, uh, a term that confounded translators, which apparently is an old Byzantine uh, name, uh, spice trade name for uh, dried slices of uh, turmeric. He also shows how medieval culinary literature is littered with recipes uh, for, that reference the royal dish of Cyprus. Uh, which uses red sandalwood pictured here to color white fasting food red to resemble blood. Uh, perhaps more important than the head games it plays with the color, he writes, is the fact that the key feature 
that made this dish so remarkable to European observers was the texture. And he talks about mousse, unknown in medieval Europe, but classic in Byzantine court cuisine under the name Afriton or foam uh, food. So you see what I mean by a narrowing of a modern palette referenced in the question of my title. So the final step in, uh, um, of reduction is suggested by Darwinian gastronomy uh, that you saw referenced in the work of Billing and Sherman. Uh, if the point of herbs, recall the argument is that the point of herbs and spices is antimicrobial function, not flavor per se, especially in meat dis dishes in hotter climes. Then perhaps we can reduce all our herbs and spices uh, uh, to onion and turmeric, maybe allspice because it has the greatest antimicrobial function and call it a day. So let, let us hope form does not follow function in that direction. So the reduction of Darwinian gastronomy in congruence with Doug's warning. I remember his warning in his paper about chemosensory dysfunction after COVID-19 for uh, almost 70% of patients uh, might just be the last nail in the coffin of variety and difference. Or alternatively, as he hopes, we might be entering in fact in er an era of hyperspicing as compensation. Maybe we're already seeing aspects of it. My next, my sixth point, uh, it is worth underlining uh, that you have paid exquisite attention to materiality and soci sociality of herbs and spices. Uh, what I mean by that is the object itself, the chemistry, the cooking process that I, for instance, do not often pay adequate attention to in my work, which is linked to, in this case, linked to, you have linked all that to social change. It marks an end, uh, in my perspective, uh, to the anxieties about mere things and the biosocial that the academically organized humanities have been fleeing for a long time, uh, and which is in fact uh, ironic that is why they have been rediscovering a new materialism and an, uh, what sometimes is called an object-oriented ontology. So the bridge between the biological, the material, and the social that had been severed is being rebuilt in many of your work, which in its widest span is eco-sociality in the time of Anthropocene, which this, the mushroom at the end of the world, gestures towards which is that our mutual dependence on each other, even when we eat the other, may in fact be precisely so because we eat the other, that we may need to care about the world. You saw reference in Amy Trubeck et al.'s work uh, on the Malagasy pepper vine in the rainforest, where, there, where they talk about a cautionary tale about agriculture, plantation economies, shifting cultivation, hunting and gathering, and agroforestry, which is linked to my first point about speaking from the margins. We have, this, we have seen this before uh, with quinoa and amaranth, uh, and this is beyond what Ian Hempel lists in his paper as perils of popularity, and Nina Bauer uh, teaches about uh, food frauds. And even more interestingly with black pepper on the Malabar coast, in Crondell's hypothesis, which he builds on uh, Katie Achaya's work about why Malabar residents uh, took to chili peppers. My next point, well, I'm happy now it's working so seamlessly. I don't know why I couldn't make it work before. <clears throat> this you recall uh, uh, Helmut Klug and Christian Steiner on a panel led by uh, Ra Rachel Loudon uh, posed the question about the uses of close reading versus distant reading, a concept they are borrowing um, from literature uh, by Franco Moretti, and who uses big data sets, data visualization, network analysis uh, to study literature. And in this case, uh, uh, Klug and Steiner, uh, along with a number of others, uh, are studying 60 recipe collections about uh, with 6,000 medieval German recipes uh, uh, and comparing it to French uh, medieval cuisine. They exquisitely note, I quote, 
uh, our flavor profile is an abstraction of food sensorics. The aim is a visual characteristic of a food or food stuff uh, instead of a verbal description. The results are not derived, they write, from a tasting process, but calculated from the data in our database. So they produce, uh, if you haven't read their paper, uh, take a look at it. Uh, they produce gorgeous lists and data visualizations based on assumptions of what Charles Spence called computational gastronomy, uh, which I think is a, is a brilliant way to uh, classify it. Here is the high water mark of objectivist aspiration to nail things down by chemistry, uh, which you also see in Darwinian gastronomic functionalism. Uh, but Charles Spence himself was, of course, making an argument for psychology of livening up and variety uh, against boredom rather than just antimicrobial uh, function. For me, this, this objectivism is, in fact, as interesting uh, as the intersubjective argumentation about why something tastes good or not so good. It is that second form of orality, that disputation, that socializes, of course, taste on the tongue. So let us move then to the opposite method of pursuing description and changes in taste, which is the subjectivist dispensation. And here is Ken Albala's exemplary work of herb usage, which is a lovely illustration of that method. The temporal frame here is very long-term, as I said before, over a millennium. Uh, first, it shows, I think, how now is not the only historical moment of fads and fashion cycles. And in doing so, Ken deepens the historicization of cultures of consumption, culinary techniques, including food coloring, and everyday technologies of caregiving and caretaking. The most interesting part of Ken's hypothesis is the distinction he makes between status-determined or over-determined spices from exotic lands and less status-oriented herbs from proximate uh, places. But just I, as I was uh, ready to agree wholeheartedly with him, I read Gina Ray LaServa's uh, paper which agrees with Ken up to a point, but then shows the transformation of wild herbs from common substance to aristocratic luxury in early modern England, when in fact botany became fashionable. So among herbs, certain combinations work better uh, for Ken and perhaps in terms of compatibility of phenolic properties in terms of this objectivist epistemology. It is in fact not just the uh, role of particular herbs, but Ken argues constellations, what people have theoretically sometimes called assemblages, such as what tomato uh, uh, in combination with certain herbs, in Ken's case, rue or heat treatment to rosemary can do uh, to good taste. Here is also something um, that is persistent throughout the symposium that I find very compelling, a kind of a rich empiricism that I appreciate. Uh, refusing, I think, to concede the whole ground to people like me with big sociological theorizations about taste as emulative and reproductive of power hierarchies. That, in fact, should be an empirical question to be interrogated, not assumed, as the sociological impulse is to do. So then there are the subjective, the objective, as I said, the intersubjective evaluation of tastes and aromas. Um, uh, of course, the question is, can we take Kent's assertion as the final word on tomato and rue? And a number of papers benefited from engaging with this kind of an intermediate space about intersubjectivity, uh, and especially the two forms of orality, which is taste and talk. Uh, with Ken's material, I also uh, noticed that almost nothing goes up in frequency other than parsley through the three Roman cookbooks. Uh, everything else goes down, lovage, mint, thyme, etc., pointing maybe to a narrowing of good taste in the Western world and a loss of capacity to appreciate fish sauce, cinnamon, and vinegar in savory dishes. And I think made more acute by various waves of Nouvelle, uh, cuisine simplifications that have largely been portrayed in the literature as a victory of refined essence within a, which I think is a romantic 
and professional presumption of good taste uh, that I think has been overstated. It is, I think, time to tell the story of loss with various waves of nouvelle cuisine simplifications of things uh, into their crystalline essences. And here, uh, Robin Toleno asked Ken uh, whether uh, his use of dried spices was driven by gastronomic logic or market logic. And I think that's a crucial point about narrowing of taste. Toleno drove the discussion to its epistemic limits in his paper when he was pursuing a 13th century faux meat dish from China. He argued that only textual knowledge was in fact inadequate to decipher if the suggested ingredient was dill or cumin or fennel. So one had to in fact cook the dish to read the text correctly so that you reach the limit of the other end of it. So I'm coming to the end of uh, my points. My eighth point here is uh, the number of different papers on colonialism and color. Uh, it is cl close to my heart. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about it because I'll have a tendency to go on and on about it. Um, it, it raises a number of very interesting conceptual questions, and I'll leave you with some of them. Uh, remember uh, uh, Julia Fine's paper uh, about turmeric. Um, in 17th century London, she argues, is a domestication of empire. So if that is correct, correct, what exactly is the cultivation of chilies in India and China at the same time, as underlined by other writers? And the paper on green gold uh, uh, looks at how certain uh, herbs and spices like achiote uh, and episote are absorbed in medicinal meals or as food colorant in the Philippines, sometimes central to fiesta dishes, but sometimes confined uh, to local regions. Um, <clears throat> and I want to elaborate on kind of this panel uh, uh, to, to draw, uh, uh, kind of to comment on some of the earlier, uh, uh, my first references, which is the degree of uh, engagement uh, in this V symposium. Uh, Janet posed the question on that panel about uh, Amazonian and NATO in Vietnam and the relationship to hegemony, hierarchy, and subaltern creativity. And then Charlotte, uh, at this beautiful point, uh, she said, what surprises me is the lack of curiosity of colonizers in both Congo and Indochina in two papers. Um, there must have been an unrecorded curiosity that had no financial value and thus hadn't, hasn't been documented. A curiosity on a more private and a human level. And I think what she's, Charlotte is raising is both a question of politics, ways of being in the world, and a question, of course, of sources and epistemology. Jennifer uh, said and wrote, I live in Sri Lanka and I find these to be quite different to those displayed by different kinds of colonial powers. The Portuguese and Dutch both created hybridized dishes, utilizing spices and local ingredients, even adopting curries to different degrees. These two foreign communities intermarried with locals, creating a new community known as the burgers. The British, however, stuck more to their unspiced, largely meat-centric diets with boiled vegetables, which of course is an interesting question about comparative colonialism and cultural power, how food sometimes flows against the gradient of power and sometimes with the gradient of power. Marsha, um, I think this is one of the last comments on that panel that I'm going to refer, reference, um, noted that muambe, uh, a dish uh, that uh, was talked about, uh, pule muambe, as a word was brought to Brazil by Africans. Muambe in Portuguese is a word that means uh, objects of smuggling. And your dish is a wonderful example of something pro probably unofficial, heart of palm, piri piri, and other items arrived in Congo way before the Belgians uh, uh, in an Atlantic interchange that only strengthens the presentation. So I think uh, the best thing in the symposium uh, happens at this level uh, of engagement. And what I really like about the Oxford Symposium is the obverse of academic approaches to first, in fact, tear down. Here, everyone compliments a paper, sometimes even when it's mediocre, that is okay. Uh, 
uh, we can do a bit more uh, with politeness, that generosity of will in the academic world. And here the visual material gestures towards Aiko Tanaka's beautiful paper on wild yuzu uh, in Japan. So, so this is bringing me to the final uh, stage of this. So the first thing, and I'll repeat here what I said, I came from the academy, disciplines dominate the academy, disciplines get committed to methods prior to posing the problem or the question. Anthropology to ethnography, history, history to its particular periodizations, especially Atlantic periodizations, uh, and the commitment to written archives, where very little in fact is written by very few for a very long time and sociologists to comparative generalizations. As I said before, this is a bit like grabbing a hammer. Even before you know that you have to pry open something or to chop something down. Okay, can be done, but clumsily. So I, in fact, deeply appreciate and what I find exclusive almost to the Oxford Symposium is that agnosticism. Uh, towards method, the toolkit, towards periodization. So things that are taken for granted in the disciplines are very productively disrupted at the Oxford Symposium. Yet, of course, in the absence of disciplinary argumentation, work sometimes tends to be encyclopedic. The challenge, in fact, is to find a hook to hang things on. That aspiration sometimes to be encyclopedic stretches the uh, potential, uh, uh, the author's potential uh, uh, to breaking point. So let me end with a couple of anecdotes. I learn a lot from anecdotes. For me, in some ways, the greatest, greatest revelation in the symposium was to learn that, in fact, Harold McGee's dissertation was on Keats and the progress of taste. Uh, and he turned out to be an English instructor whose life's work has been uh, writing about organic chemistry. I mean, that is kind of a beautiful and a powerful uh, story. And I'm very, it's good to know that Ken still manages to think about other things in spite of his recent obsession with Jello. If you have been following him, it's crazy, creative, persistent, and then this kind of a beautiful comparative work. I cannot wait for William Weaver's, uh, Weaver's book. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, I was really envious of Amy Trubeck's journey to Madagascar while I'm trapped here at home for the last five months. Um, and, and I can't wait to read this pile of books, including the book on top. Uh, I just got my uh, uh, copy of Zootopia, uh, just gotten into the first chapter. Uh, I, I, I'm looking forward uh, to reading it. And I have the list, uh, I have the time, uh, in August to finish uh, this file. And you see the top of it is Sitopia, uh, and it is sitting on Cuisine and Empire by Rachel Loudon at the bottom and everything uh, uh, in between. So I'll leave you uh, uh, finally uh, with this word cloud, which is a real word cloud of all the papers presented uh, at the, uh, this Oxford Symposium. Uh, and I, of course, excluded words like draft and distribution and manuscript and page numbers and also food, herbs and spices, just to uh, uh, make this more visually uh, uh, appealing. I was surprised to see that there was so much talk about cinnamon, saffron, uh, pepper, uh, and of course, recipes, down. Let me, let me close uh, by saying thank you to the organizers and thank you to all of you for uh, listening to me today and looking forward uh, to the join. And uh, I apologize for the PowerPoint. It seems that your internet is a little bit unstable right now, um, but I first want to thank you for that brilliant, uh, insightful, and very, very thorough discussion of so many of the papers that were presented. Um, I also have um, a couple of questions that have been posted in the chat and a few of my own. Um, and I'm going to take the privilege of being the host here 
to ask you um, to think a little bit, you've spoken quite a bit about the bevy of tools and methodological differences uh, that we are unfettered here in the symposium by and large by some of the disciplinary requirements of the academy. Um, but I wonder in looking at some of the things that have emerged in the past, say, 30 years or so in the academy, things, uh, interdisciplinary areas that often end in studies, food studies, urban studies, where we don't yet have uh, a straitjacket of methodology. Um, is the academy changing to be more like some of the freedom we have here now? Brilliant, brilliant question. Um, I think, uh, but I, the more time I spend in the academy, I, re I was a lot more optimistic when I was at the Culinary Institute uh, because then it looked like the whole world was open, the potential was open, but the academy is a very conservative institution. So though half the people in there think they're revolutionaries um, and uh, very slow moving, very status conscious, very prestige conscious. It looks a lot more like India with caste to me. Uh, hence, it's uh, A, you're correct, uh, interdisciplinarity, has been emerging for a while, uh, but I think it still lacks the prestige of the disciplines and resources and funding and um, inviting um, collaborative work. Uh, we are trying to do that uh, slowly, uh, hesitatingly, but still difficult to convince deans, associate deans, vice deans, and our colleagues in the disciplines to provide resources to these interdisciplinary spaces. So I would say, Yes, happening, very slow rate of change. Hope it was a little faster. Uh, but I also, by the way, think these um, almost no ecologies of knowledge are very uh, productive. It is good to have academic disciplines. It is good to have interdisciplinary spaces. It is good to have the Oxford Symposium doing slightly different things. And I have one other that I would like to to you before I turn it over to some of the questions from the audience. Um, and that is to actually push back a little bit on the concept of the narrowing of the palette in the Western world. Um, and many of the phenomenon you mentioned are absolutely true. Uh, market economies, consolidations, certainly the eradication of foraging in so many places, although that's hardly limited uh, to the West, it is happening throughout the world and unfortunately in places uh, where it is most important uh, to subsistence. Um, but are we looking at these from kind of cultural, nationalistic perspectives? Um, there may be another end of the telescope to look through, which is what I am trying to say. The question is, who can eat what, how much, and when? And if we look through historical periods, um, I would suggest that while certainly not universal and certainly for the prosperous West, uh, there may be an expanding of the palette and there may also be an expanding of the palette in other places as we have invention and development uh, to help feed mass populations. Um, and I'll just throw in one other item there. Uh, that social act, say in the past 20 years, certainly in the West, I can't speak about uh, Eastern cultures, I'm not knowledgeable, but the idea of the social public act of dining in restaurants where novelty, creativity, the new ingredient, underscoring your we're taking things from one area, bringing them to another, um, but is it quite as bleak as I think your title slide suggests? Yeah, that's good. In fact, um, uh, I, I, I was beginning to have doubts uh, when I first shared the title with you. That's why, by the way, I changed the title, if you noticed. I don't say an arrowing of good taste in the Western world. I say an arrowing of uh, good taste in the modern world. So yeah. yes. Uh, and so, uh, so one is that. And I think, uh, and the larger point is correct. Um, and here, um, uh, I, depends on your unit of, unit of analysis. 
if you look at some Western nations, um, uh, there is an expansion, both in terms of access and in terms of kinds of things, let's say herbs and spices. Uh, but if you look at the global south, uh, India being a huge uh, socio-ecological space is a good example of it. Uh, there is a consolidation of the marketplace. There, is, there are less and less local herbaceous uh, uh, greens available in almost all markets. Uh, and right now I'm doing a study of markets, uh, not only in Delhi, but also in um, Bhubaneswar in, in Odisha. And uh, just simply going to the markets and seeing what's there. Uh, if you have uh, uh, basically large populations who do no longer have skills to distinguish between various kinds of herbs and greens, like the, the, we, the way we use spinach, for instance, right? That everything is a spinach is a way of, uh, is a loss that I see even more acutely happening, in fact, in the global south, both with um, A, nationalism, B, consolidation of the marketplace, because you can make money uh, out of selling small amounts of very uh, perishable things. The, no one has figured that out yet. Uh, and so because of that, uh, we basically have a loss. So if you use your unit of, your criticism is correct. Um, if you, uh, if I had kept the title only as the West, um, if you take the modern world in its totality, expand the whole unit of analysis, uh, I might still wager on my argument that there's a narrowing. Well done. To be continued. Um, we yes. have a, a couple of questions. Uh, Naomi Duguid has a wonderful question about uh, food becoming performance. Can we spotlight Naomi? Hi there, Krish. Um, hey, Naomi, lovely hey, to see you. I see you, you on from Twitter. Toronto. <laughs> I see you on Twitter uh, all the time now. And yes. vice versa. <laughs> yes. um, I, my question is, you know, once food uh, becomes performance rather than physical and cultural survival, and food was performance for kings and royalty, but now, um, now it's performance for many more people in the prosperous world, wherever they are in the global world. Um, the idea of necessity has almost disappeared. And so perhaps in this era of environmental stress and climate change, the catastrophes we're gonna have will oblige us all to be more respectful of what's available and nourishing rather than focusing on consumption for status. Uh, the people in the prosperous world may be obliged to go back to being aware of necessity, and then your point, oh, if, this, if there's a loss and people don't know what those greens are, well, they'll have to learn again, you know, and that's where I guess librarians and um, uh, people out doing research and talking to grandmothers are going to become very important, and people like Binti, uh, other people out reminding us of, uh, of wisdoms, but I just wonder if you have any, any thought about that. You're absolutely right. And I think I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, reading uh, Cytopia. I, I'm assuming some of the argument is going to be there. Uh, and uh, Naomi, you're absolutely right about, um, in some ways, this is a bit of a tension between um, taste and fun and aesthetic and ethics and, 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 the, and the degree of convergence between um, the good in the world, the beautiful in the world, the tasteful in the world, uh, and the necessity of saving this world that is uh, on, on, the, uh, on the edge of a catastrophic uh, and a slow moving crisis, um, or in fact fast, um, uh, uh, slow moving in terms of our individual lives probably. Uh, absolutely right, and what it does, I don't have an answer of course, uh, but I have wondered about this performativity. I like its um, democratic quality. I like the fact that what people used to write, people can Instagram now and tweet now, which is, I think, opens up, widens the public that is under discussion. Uh, but your question is, does it es escalate uh, competitive consumption um, to a point of destruction that we, in fact, uh, the, the, the cost of this cultural opening may not be affordable ecologically. Thanks. I think we have time for two more questions. Uh, we will start with Marini Edwards first and then move on to Rick Shepro. Uh, so if we can find Marini, please. 
Um, I can read it for you if you would like. Uh, in, in my opinion, in former colonized countries, views of the colonizing uh, powers food should be taken with a big pinch of salt. How can one distinguish myth from reality? Hmm. I don't know whether I understand the question exactly. Um, <clears throat> I mean, of course, let me just take the second part of the question, uh, which is what I loved about a lot of the work is in fact the relationship between myth and reality. And a uh, lot of cultural memory is embedded uh, in terms of myth in this more expansive notion rather than as uh, I think the question uh, is posing it as a narrower frame of fake lore. Uh, and so, yes, uh, wherever, um, and here, I, it's promising and also worrying. Uh, it's worrying that, in fact, a lot of the mythology about food is being now driven uh, by questions of nationalism and identity that is making it very uh, difficult, in fact, to account for the margins, which I, which I loved about so many presentations at Oxford, that you could recount the margins uh, in spite of the broader tendency to beat down. Uh, and I, I live in, um, I'm an Indian citizen who lives in the US, and these two democracies are under tremendous pressure uh, uh, from uh, the very people who want to create a straitjacket that what an Indian eats is presumably going to be only vegetarian uh, and what it does to include and exclude uh, people. Uh, similarly, uh, in the US, it's in a different stage, uh, but a, a similar conversation about, in fact, for the first time in a while, we are beginning to see the role of disgust uh, in thinking about people. And, uh, and uh, food plays a crucial role in generating uh, disgust. So I take this question to mean that uh, uh, there, there's a productive line between myth and reality that can be interrogated, is being interrogated in papers at the Oxford Symposium. There's also the dangerous weight of mythologizing dominant, loud, uh, verbose uh, patterns as the standard of any nation, any group of people. Excellent. And the privilege of the last question is going to go to Rick Shepro. If we can find Rick, please. Unmute yourself, Rick. Can we get up oh, there? Okay, now it's now I'm unmuted. Yep, um, I can hear you. Yep. <clears throat> so the question um, relates. You said you had many thoughts about colonialism that there wouldn't be time for. Um, a specific one that I think is a very complex question is about um, cultural appropriation in food. There have been lots of recent discussions about this. Um, I'm talking about discussions not at this symposium. Um, and many of them seem simplistic. They, they discount people's curiosity, their interest in exploring other cultures, the long history throughout world history of one culture influencing another. Um, on the other hand, there are questions about um, the debasement of uh, culinary language when um, dishes are transmitted from one culture to another. Um, there are questions of um, the, the purity of, um, of a culture and doing a dish the right way. Um, there are even questions of monopoly and monopoly power involved in, in that concept. So I wondered if you could comment on that very complex topic. Yeah, no, good, uh, Rick. Um, uh, thanks uh, for raising it because <clears throat> um, two things. I think one, um, what I like about the cultural appropriation conversation is in fact, 
it poses the question about power and cultural production, which is fantastic, uh, which is in fact academics have been studying uh, for a very long time. Uh, and a number of you uh, have written about it, are writing about it, is what's the relationship between knowledge and power, uh, including cultural knowledge. Uh, where I think in some ways the cultural appropriation discussion uh, is unproductive is in, uh, in fact, trying to prov uh, provide practical solutions. I think uh, it provides terrible answers. It poses terrific questions. Uh, and if we can stay focused on the questions um, and in fact acknowledge its importance in different uh, um, uh, ratios of relationship. And I'll give you examples uh, from the American context where I think probably it's the most overheated uh, in the North American context uh, in some ways. Uh, it is pointing to some very productive things, simple things like, for instance, if you are, uh, um, say, a Bangladeshi uh, commentator at Bonaparte, and if you're white, your pay rates are different. That's illegal. That's, uh, that's wrong. Uh, and that is part of this question of power, uh, knowledge, benefits, and who makes a living out of these things. So one is that part of it. But on the other side, does it mean that we just all stop cooking uh, each other's food? A, we even, I, I won't even know what exactly is my food and what exactly is not my food. Uh, for instance, what is Indian food? I don't know 99.99% of Indian food, uh, having spent half my life in India. And I don't know the same amount in terms of American and food. Uh, so to nail down an answer is the tough one. And I think I'll leave you with one thing which I, I use in my mind to think about these questions. Was this, is this uh, relationship between intimacy and integrity. Uh, it's a bit like being curious about another, like in a relationship. Um, you want to be open to the other, but you also don't want to swamp the other, even with your love and even with your caring uh, and even with your taking possession of uh, 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 another's, what is another's. Uh, and so for me, it is this balance between openness, uh, open-mindedness towards intimacy with another, another's culture that I'm totally unfamiliar with. How does one cultivate that? And of course, avoid the pitfalls uh, of clearly uh, unequal uh, pay rates and stuff like that. On the other side, while doing it, and I think a lot of the, uh, lot of the uh, cultural appropriation question uh, poses that, is how to retain the integrity of the other. And, and the question specifically, in the US, I'm most familiar with, uh, with it, often emerges in the life and experience of second generation um, uh, immigrants, the children of immigrants. And if you look at most of the most stringent criticism about uh, cultural appropriation is coming from the children of immigrants who basically have been humiliated in school cafeterias about their food as smelly, disgusting. So that is there in the adult world. We have forgotten in our omnivorousness. We think all cultures are equal. That's great. I would love to eat uh, anyone else's food but children are traumatized by this disgust and disdain they face in the school cafeteria and a lot of and then they say okay so now now you are now it's all very cool what happened to the disgust from my school cafeteria to the great love of everything foreign and exotic now i think the criticism is hitting on some of those experiences and which are real which are legitimate and uh, and i'll give you an uh, kind of a, uh, an answer to it, which I think is positive. If you have noticed, um, many of these people now are restaurant critics of the major American newspapers. Uh, that is unprecedented. Uh, Tejal Rao, okay, uh, Soliho, uh, uh, Patricia Escarcega, uh, which is a beautiful thing, uh, which is, I think, the relationship, my first point I was making. Why were all our restaurant critics often white most of the times male. Uh, uh, and uh, the fact that you have these people now move into restaurant criticism and have a byline 
uh, it, I think, has made the discussion more quarrelsome, uh, but more productive, the food more interesting, which is linked to Cathy's uh, first question, is food becoming less interesting? This, if my unit of analysis is North America and my units of analysis is the United States, if my unit of analysis are the major newspaper restaurant critics, food is a lot more interesting since 2019. Of course, all this has happened in 2019. We will see what happens after 2020. Krish? Thank you so much for such a stimulating discussion. We could go on for hours talking about these uh, issues, um, but I would hope that David could unmute everyone so we could give a round of applause and appreciation. Uh, I still see little red muted uh, arrows, but this is from me. And we are Thank you very much going for the answer. Back to uh, David, we're going to have some music, take a short break so people can refresh their beverages and come back for 2023 topic debate and discussion, an exercise in chaotic democracy. <laughs> Hi all, yeah, um, you don't have to leave the room, but we are going to give you, I'm just going to... Um, um, put the screen up here to show you what's going to be happening next with the um, topic discussion. Um, but we did want to give you some time just to get a bit of a comfort break. Um, that was so fascinating. I'm, I still feel glued to the screen, but it is important to, to um, make sure that we get some, um, you know, have some water and what have you. So um, look forward to seeing you in about four minutes and four seconds. <laughs> <laughs>